0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Rizza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. We are now exactly two, count them, two weeks out from election day, and so the Hell and High Water midterm homestretch hustle kicks into high gear. As we welcome back to the podcast a dear friend and one of my all-time favorite guests and Judging by the ginormous number of downloads every time he's been on before, one of your all-time favorites, too. He's the senior political commentator at CNN, the host of one fantastic podcast called The Axe Files, and the co-host of another fantastic podcast called Hacks on Tap. He's the author of a truly terrific memoir entitled Believer, My 40 Years in Politics, and as the director of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, The season ticket holder to the Chicago Cubs, the Chicago White Sox, and the Chicago Bulls, as well as, get this, the Guinness Book World Record holder for lifetime quantities consumed of pastrami, corned beef, and beef brisket sandwiches from the legendary Chicago institution, Manny's Deli. That might not be totally true, but he's eaten there a lot. All of those things taken together makes this guy arguably the greatest living ambassador for the second city, the Windy City, the city of big shoulders. In which, as it happens, he also, incidentally, discovered, nurtured, guided, taught the dark arts of politics to, and served famously as the keeper of the message for another fella widely associated with the city of Chicago. A fella named Barack Obama, whose presidential campaign in 2008, whose re-election campaign in 2012, and whose White House in the years 2009 and 2010, our guests today served with pride, dignity, good humor, and even occasionally, humility. And yes, 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 I know you know who I'm talking about here. The man, the myth, the legend, the one and only David Axelrod. We caught up with Axe last weekend when he happened to be in the Big Apple, where he was born and raised to celebrate his 50th high school reunion from New York's legendary Stuyvesant High School. And while he was racing around the city, at least as much as any man with a half century between himself and his senior prom is capable of racing, we were able to snag him for an extended discussion of the state of the midterms with just a fortnight to go. Axelrod and I talked about the shifting dynamics out there in campaign land. How the winds that were driving the campaign previously around the issue of abortion seem to have lost a little bit of their gust and been overtaken by another set of gale forces around the economy and crime and culture. We talked about the roles in these final days of President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. of Axelrod's old boss, Barack Obama, who heads out on the campaign trail this week and even Bernie Sanders, who has taken up the banner of the economy and been making the argument that his party has sort of let that banner flag to its detriment uh, in this campaign. He's now out there on the campaign trail stumping and making economics the center of his message as he often and always has. We also talked about David's cautious optimism that despite the shifts in the landscape that have given Republicans momentum in the final days of this campaign, that Democrats might still be able to hold on to the Senate. Axelrod basing that view on his assessments race by race, campaign by campaign in a bunch of key states. We talk about them all. Georgia, Nevada, Wisconsin, Ohio, Arizona, and of course, of course, Pennsylvania, which takes center stage this week with the single, solitary, highly anticipated, eagerly watched for sure debate that's scheduled between John Fetterman and Dr. Mehmet Oz. That debate taking place the night that this podcast drops. So if you listen to this podcast on whatever platform you happen to use, Early, as soon as you get it, you'll be able to hear Axelrod talking about the race and the debate, and making an argument uh, that might seem a little contrarian to some. In a race that has been dominated over the past couple of weeks with discussions of John Fetterman's health in the wake of his stroke uh, last spring, questions that have been hammered home ever more aggressively by Dr. Oz. That Fetterman has done a lot in the last couple of weeks to try to address, and questions that will surely be at the center of this big debate tonight, according to the conventional wisdom. Axelrod, like I said, takes a kind of contrarian point of view and makes an argument about a different issue that he says has loomed larger and more consequential in the race and perhaps could turn out to be decisive to the outcome. Let's listen to that.
1: I actually don't think it's his health that has narrowed that race. It's the $30 million of spending they did in in September on the issue of crime. And focusing on his uh, his tenure as uh, chair of the pardon board in Pennsylvania, I think that uh, you know was sort of a uh, a way of consolidating uh, Democratic uh, Republican support behind Oz and beginning to swing some of those independent voters back. Uh, but I do, and so as important, John, as it is for Fetterman to handle the health issue well in this debate. Um, I think it's equally important for him to handle the crime issue well in that debate. And, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, at the end of the day, if he loses the race, it is, is, I think, less likely to be because of his health as it is because they have successfully portrayed him as outside the mainstream on, you know, on criminal justice
0: There is a metric ton more wisdom just like that in our episode today with David Axelrod uh, in which the former Obama guru, maestro, Svengali, weighs in on not just those Key Senate races, but a couple wildcard races that people are paying attention to now, like the one in Utah where suddenly Evan McMuffin, a.k.a. McMullen, uh, seems to be giving Mike Lee a run for his money. Is it possible Mike Lee could lose to a breakfast sandwich? Stay tuned. Axelrod has views on that. Also, Patty Murray, Democratic incumbent out in Washington. Suddenly, Democrats are starting to worry that she might be in jeopardy. Axelrod weighs in on that question. He also talks about uh, governor's races, the ones that everyone was looking forward to. Stacey Abrams in Georgia, running for governor for a second time. Beto O'Rourke in Texas, running for governor for the first time, but four years after he ran for Senate and two years after he ran for president. Those are supposed to be the big marquee contest this year at the gubernatorial level. It hasn't quite turned out that way. Axelrod talks about why. He also talks about the surprising race for governor in Oregon, a three-way race, three women in which Democrats are in trouble and risk the possibility that we will have the first statewide office won by a Republican in a state that touches the Pacific Ocean in many, many, many years. Pay attention to that one. Also... The high stakes, super high stakes, crazy high stakes gubernatorial race in Arizona featuring that dynamo, that dangerous, dangerous, dangerous dynamo, Carrie Lake, uh, who looks like, uh, on the strength of her own performance and on the weakness of that of her Democratic opponent, looks like she might very well win that race. An outright election denier and conspiracy theory propounder, Carrie Lake. Uh, Axelrod talking about what's at stake and what's at risk in that race if Kerry Lake does win, and he talks about Barack Obama's much publicized appearance last week on Pod Save America, where he took a notable poke at the excessively woke politics of the left. We ask Axelrod whether he agrees with his former boss that Democrats need to stop being such quote buzzkills. Spoiler alert: he does. And finally, we get Axe to weigh in on a subject of enormous interest and very little controversy, but enormous interest here in New York City. That would be the anti-rat campaign unveiled last week in New York City by a range of public officials, a campaign that Axelrod as a New York native heartily approves of, but also which he sees a giant political opportunity in for one particular politician that David imagines in the future running for president, and branding himself as the Verminator. All of which brings us back to Axelrod's exalted status as a graduate of Stuyvesant High, one of only six secondary schools worldwide that has educated four or more Nobel laureates. That's pretty impressive. But even more impressive, that alumni list. I mean, that is an august bunch that have graduated from Stuyvesant High, a group of people that most of us would find pretty intimidating to be part of. Former Attorney General Eric Holder. The physicist Brian Greene, the economist Thomas Sowell, the comedian Billy Eichner. I mean, that's a pretty serious group, but as impressive as they are, and impressive as they may be, I would contend that David Axelrod stands head and shoulders above them all, because among that group, how many of them could ever have come up on the fly with something as brilliant as the Verminator, while at the same time making his third and best appearance yet on Hell in High Water?
2: You know, one of the things I want to emphasize in this midterm is the importance of looking not just at the top of the ballot, but all the way down the bottom, because uh, there are governor's races, secretary of state's races, uh, state legislative races that are going to really matter. Um, You know, when we talk about how are we going to preserve democracy, particularly at a time when... The current Supreme Court, um, to, to put it charitably, does not seem as invested <laughs> in, uh, uh, in in overseeing and 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 and, and uh, uh, stopping monkey business at the local level. Uh, it becomes that much more important for us to to make sure that we've got quality candidates
0: and we're supporting them, and we're turning out for them at every level. So there's there's, uh, there's Barack Hussein Obama, um, as they like to call him back in 2008, um, the former president of the United States, on the on Pod Save America. And we have David Axelrod. And David, as someone who was once known as the keeper of the narrative, yes. um, first of all, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great, man. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm talking to you on my iPhone because I can't find my freaking – Computer, right? I've had a disastrous uh, run on the road, but all is well because I'm here with you.
0: Oh, that's great! And uh, I won't mention that you're in New York for your uh, for your fiftieth fiftieth. Yeah, history. I
1: think that's That'd a, a lesser person would would have mentioned that. So I'm glad you won't.
0: Yeah. So so I, your boss goes on Pod Save America. He does this occasionally, and they did a really nice job with him. And 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 he said a lot of really smart yeah. things. The the first thing though to kind of set the table there. This thing of like his, his focus on the the precariousness of American the American Democratic experiment, it's not new, but he seems as focused or more focused on it headed into these midterms as he even was before the 2020 elections when, you know, everyone thought it was all on the line. Is that your perception that he's like really keyed in on
1: well, yeah, I these mean, I midterms think matter? Pay, anything who anyone who's paying attention uh, should uh, have that concern, you know. Uh, I saw a statistic, uh, I think, this morning or yesterday morning, that more than a, more than 50 percent of the Republican candidates who are running for Congress uh, are people who will not acknowledge the legitimacy of the last election. You've got gubernatorial candidates like Carrie Lake in Arizona, who very well may be elected, who who has um, pitched her entire campaign around election denial and who has told her supporters that if she doesn't win, it will be because there has been uh, cheating. You've got secretary of state candidates around the country, including in Arizona, in Michigan, in Minnesota, in Nevada, uh, and elsewhere who are uh, election deniers and say that that is one of their motivations for running, so it does make you wonder if these people win. What is the 2024 election going to be like? Are right. the results going to be certified in every state? And by the way, most of the states I mentioned are uh, swing states, right? That are right. going to determine the presidency. And and yes, I think this whole battle is being fought at the state legislative level as well, where you you know legislatures are going to get involved more readily, especially if the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, disallows the involvement of state courts, which they may well do. So this is a very serious moment for democracy. I think he's absolutely right about it. And I'll tell you something, just, you know, one of the things that I regret from our time was we were so focused on dealing with the financial crisis and on, uh, you know, the Healthy. federal elections yeah. that, we, you know, we we lost a lot of ground on, on in these state Elections and particularly legislative elections, and I think uh, that I think every one of us who was involved from the president on down would say, "I wish we had paid more attention to that then."
0: Right, and, and it's interesting, you know, to hear him say. And I'll, I'll ask you three quick questions coming out of this. Right, one is he says at the end of that of that of that bite, he says it's it's important for us to make sure we have quality candidates and that we're supporting them. Meaning Democrats are supporting them and turning out for them at every level. At every level, right. So there's a series of things there. A, you know, do you think that as we head as we're heading to the home stretch of these midterms, Democratic candidate quality has been, you know, good enough? Is that your view, or do you think Democrats have has, that their overall candidate quality, particularly in key races, leaves
1: something to be desired? I mean, I think that there are some races that are key races where candidates could be stronger. You know, I mean, I, I think, for example, in Arizona, Katie Hobbs. Uh, the Democratic candidate for governor is a thoroughly admirable public official. I mean, she did a good job as secretary of state in a difficult uh, period. But, uh, you know, she she is uh, she is a reticent campaigner running against, you know, a, a, a someone who may end up being a, a vacuous uh, governor, but is a star performer. Yes. Uh, and so that, that has made that race more competitive than it should be. I mean, I think Democrats should be able to win that race. Maybe she'll win that race, but, uh, you know, she's just as a personality, she's overmatched. So, you know, no, we, you know, Democrats haven't nominated great candidates at every, uh, in every slot. I think that's impossible. Um, but uh, I don't think ultimately – I think Republicans have more of a quality issue than right. Democrats. And that that is largely the gift of Donald J. Trump.
0: Yeah, just that that, that conservative writer the other day who said in the wake of the Herschel Walker scandal, someone I think, Jim Garrity maybe, who said uh, all we had to have was normal and we could have won. We could have had a huge year and we haven't had normal, particularly at the Senate level. There's a bunch of these races where I think we'd agree if, there yeah. were. if you had a, if you had a normal – Uh, A Brian Kemp-level Senate candidate in the Georgia Senate race, it would probably not be close. If you had a better candidate uh, in in the Pennsylvania Senate race, it might not be close. Well, you know, I mean,
1: Dave McCormick, who ran against uh, Dr. Oz, uh, you know, arguably arguably would be in a much stronger position than Oz is uh, right now in in what I consider to be the uh, bellwether race for control of the Senate.
0: So let, let, I'm going to come back to that one in, in some detail a little later, but I, I want to ask you this other thing about what Obama said, right, which was we're supporting them and turning out for them at every level. And he's making the point, the point, the accurate point that, like, you know, it's true with Mark Fincham in Arizona and other places. These secretary of state's races matter a lot. Yeah. The attorney attorney's general races matter a lot. Yes. The governor's races matter a lot. All of those things, right? Is it your sense that that, that this is a point that everybody at your level in, in democratic politics and anybody who covers it understands and there's been coverage of it. And, you know, some people like Mark Fincham is a name you now hear. Secretary of State's rates have never gotten as much uh, coverage as they've gotten in this in this particular cycle. But do you think out there in America land among Democratic base voters, among, among Democratic leaning swing voters, among the kind of people who Obama rightly says they have to turn out and they have to turn out at every level or we're fucked. Do you think that Democratic voters are keyed in on we really have to turn out? And we can't just turn out at the at, for the Senate race. We got to like really go out and turn out and, and make sure that we are focused on these lower level down ballot races because they matter.
1: No, and I think partly because the resources that have been spent have largely been spent on behalf of the top of the ballot candidates uh, by committees that are concerned about uh, and voters who are concerned about c- uh, control of Congress. In some states, gubernatorial races. Um, I don't think there has been sufficient focus on the on the gravity of these down ballot races that will um, be, you know, e- extraordinarily important uh, in the next two years uh, leading up to the next presidential election. I, I, you know, there are a few organizations that are focused on secretary of states races, uh, and they're throwing some money at it, uh, but it really should be a priority. Um, and it's not. And so, you know, if, if you don't put the resources behind these races, it's not, it's not surprising that voters aren't paying a great deal of attention to them. I would say the national political
0: pundit, you know, commentariat analyst class narrative is right now the conventional wisdom says, um, uh, Democrats. You say were that ter- was kind of a
1: sneer. You you, no. you you describe this as a. You remind me of Gary. <laughs> Gary Hart once told me that Washington's always the last to get the news, which yeah. I think is um, was those were words to live by. But anyway, go ahead.
0: That's why. That's why I don't live in Washington D.C., David. I live in the heart of the real America in Manhattan. Um, yeah. So you know. I, yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, you know, there's a view that. Democrats were kind of fucked in the first half of the year. Then after Dobbs, there was a surge of energy around, you know, the the backlash to the repeal of Roe and, you know, women registered. We saw the vote in Kansas. We saw, you know, the special election in New York. And, you know, abortion was going to be the thing that was that kind of turned the tide. Also good economic news at the end of the summer or decent economic news. It still was always the case that Republicans were likely favored by a lot to re- take control of the House. But people said, you know, maybe the, wins, the gains won't be that great. And right. maybe, maybe Democrats can not only hold the Senate, but even pick up a seat or two. That has been replaced in the last, I'd say, week to 10 days with talk again of red wave, you know, that that inflation uh, and crime and some of these other Republican favoring issues are now dominating the national conversation and Democrats are in serious trouble of losing a ton of seats in the house and 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 maybe losing control of the Senate that things have shifted do you agree with that
1: I think things have shifted I don't think there's any question that you know this the ground is not as hospitable as it seemed it might be in the summer and the, your narrative is the right narrative I mean six months ago, you know, you, you wouldn't want to leave a Democrat in a room with any sharp objects because everybody was so just absolutely morose about the prospects. Uh, then came Dobbs, but also at the same time, there were two horrendous mass, mur- uh, mass shootings that put a focus back on the gun issue. Donald Trump resurfaced in a big way, and he's resurfaced as the sponsor of some really extreme candidates. And yeah. all of it contributed to a notion of the uh, republican party as a more extreme party you know and six months ago you would have said to in in if you put independent voters sw- independent swing voters together they'd said gee i think biden's getting tugged too far to the left
3: right.
1: uh, after that the events of june the same group of voters would say i think the republicans are getting to, to uh, you know tugged too far to the right and also you know, Democrats who had been sitting on the sidelines were activated uh, by these issues, particularly Dobbs, and uh, motivated by uh, some victories that Biden and the Democrats had in Congress. So, and by the way, gas prices were going down during that period in a dramatic way. So all of those things combined to create a more hospitable environment. But The elections aren't held in August. They're held in November. Uh, Gas prices are on their way back up. Uh, The inflation picture uh, does not look brighter. Um, There's more recession concern. And the Republicans have placed uh, a boatload of money uh, uh, in ads on the crime issue, particularly in metropolitan areas aimed at suburban voters who are swing voters, some of whom may have been swinging the other way on the basis of the events of June. Um, So, you know, uh, and, and you're seeing consolidation. I mean, Pennsylvania, for example, you know, there are a lot of Republicans who don't like Dr. Oz, who's still, you know, for a variety of reasons. uh, But, you know, he's beginning to consolidate Republicans and that's narrowed uh, the race. But overall, Yes, I think the environment has become more challenging for Democrats, more promising for Republicans. I don't think, and I may live to, you know, this is, I assume you have tape of this stuff, so I'm going to say something (laughs) that can be used against me in a few weeks. I mean, I don't think it's going to be, you know, the average midterm election, a party loses 25, the party power loses about 25 seats. I I don't think it's going to be anything uh, like that. Uh, I mean, I mean, it may be something like that, but I don't think it's going to be anything. I don't think it's going to be much more than that. We lost 63 seats in (laughs) 2010, partly because we were holding a lot of real estate that we probably shouldn't have been holding. But one of the things that's going to hold them down uh, is there are a number of places where they might have picked up seats and retained seats where, um, uh, You know they've nominated candidates who just are too extreme. Marcy Kaptur, who's a 40-year veteran of Congress in Western Ohio, was a very ripe target until they nominated a guy who was super far right and you know had tried to uh, and offered fraudulent military credentials. You know, the Peter Meyer district uh, in Michigan yeah, right. around Grand Rapids was, you know, a com- a, it's a competitive district, but not necessarily with the uh, uh, with the Yahoo they nominated. So I think that will hold that down. Right. Uh, but, you know, there are a lot of things. I mean, John, as we sit here today, I mean, there are seven competitive districts in the state of New York. I know. There are three competitive districts in the state of Oregon. These are blue states. Yes. Uh, I, so you know, there's there's reason for concern among Democrats.
0: So here's my my question. I'm, I'm gonna play here. I'll, I'll, we played it. We Barack Obama. i want to play his vice president and successor, which is starting to say – it sounds a little like you're in the British royal family or something when you start talking about that. <laughs> but here's 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 Joe Biden. This and, and pl- talking about Republican economics, uh, and and I want to play it because it gets at a pretty fundamental debate uh, within the Democratic Party about what its messaging has looked like over the last few months and what it should look like in these closing a few weeks. So let's uh, take a listen uh, to Joe Biden here uh, going in on economics, pounding away at the Republican Party, making an argument that we have not heard a lot of from Democrats in these midterms, but that Biden apparently thinks should be central to their closing arguments. They have three, not one, not two, three plans to cut Social Security benefits, three plans. They're not going to stop there. They're going to do big farmers bidding to repeal my plan to allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drugs prices. We pay the highest in the world. And in doing so, it's going to raise drug prices. And they're going to raise big farmers profits. They're doing fine, big farmers. They're not hurting at all. And they're going to raise your health insurance premiums. It's mega, mega trickle down. Mega, mega trickle down, the kind of policies that have failed the country before and will
1: fail it again.
0: First, uh, David, in your professional opinion, is it a good idea to give Joe Biden a tongue twister as his bumper sticker <laughs> slogan there?
1: Well, not even a good tongue twister. It's, mega, it's, mega. It's, what a, yeah. Vita,
0: yeah. I feel no, like no, she's I Luc- saying, he's... loose. No,
1: no, not a, not a good idea. But look. Um, he's
0: Lucille Ball. He's trying to say, Vita, Vita, Vitamina, Vegemin.
1: vitamin. I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not sitting there looking. In depth at the research that they're looking at, my instinct is uh, that first of all, um, you know, people are so used to hearing stuff like that. This is they're going to do this, and they're going to. The fact is, they've done some stuff, right? I mean, they voted against a prescription drug. uh, You know, uh, cutting the cost of prescription drugs. They, you know, they, they, there are things that they have done. Uh, that, that it seems to me that is, that has more grip to it. But beyond that, John, my my view is the, that you have to kind of meld these things together. And I always used to say in my campaigns to the guys I was working with, gals I was working with is, you know, let's start from the truth and work from there. (laughs) And, you know, uh, and the truth is, you know, when uh, Kevin McCarthy was, uh, was, uh, unveiling what he called a agenda for the future, which basically was a palm card with a lot of uh, bromides on it. Yeah. Um, uh, he, he had a big press conference and who was the most visible member of that caucus sitting right by his side. Yeah. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. Who is, who is promising that they will impeach Joe Biden as one of the first things that they will do because, uh, of, uh, his execution of the wars in Afghanistan and Ukraine. I mean, she doesn't know what the hell she's talking about, but that's what she says that that, that she's going, going to do. I mean, they're, they are, uh, you know, they're a party that is consumed by, uh, kind of a passion to, uh, to, to, to repeal abortion rights, to repeal the last election, to stand with, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, uh, big pharma on issues like uh, prescription drugs uh, to uh, and and on middle class economics are just on the wrong side of those things. Um, and, And their interest is in, you know, like impeaching the president and causing chaos, not in solving problems. And I'd be contrasting the Democratic Party as problem solvers, earnestly trying to help on real life issues that people have, versus a party with this exotic right-wing agenda. And uh, I think that's the truest argument because whatever Kevin McCarthy thinks, he put Marjorie Taylor Greene there for a reason. Because those folks have a lot of power in the Republican Party now, so we know what to expect. We we, we know to expect crazy.
0: To me, it was interesting. You know, we saw Bernie Sanders just last week. I think come out and yeah. basically say, "Hey, uh, party, abortion rights are really important, but they're not right. the only thing. They're not the only right. thing that matters. We need right. an economic right. message, and we need an, ec- right. an, ec- an economic message that resonates with working class and middle class voters. And so Bernie's going to go out on a national tour and say that, uh, and, and spout and, and and put forward what his. His, his, his vision of that is, and it'll be the same vision that he's been very consistently in favor of for, for decades, right? But I th- that raises that question to me, David. There One thing, that was a thing, that is something that happened, and it happened alongside this fact that some polling showed that one of the most popular things that the Democrats have done in the last two years is this thing that Biden mentions, it just kind of drops along the way in that, in that clip that I just played where he says the thing about how they have finally passed a law that right. allows uh, a, a negotiation for, for drug prices uh, as part of Medicare. And 30 incredible... years
1: Democrats have been trying to get that done.
0: Yes. And most people in the country have no idea that right. it's happened. And Democrats right. have not been out campaigning on that in an affirmative right. way, either right. from the white house or all the way down. That seems right. like a, first of all, a huge mistake to me. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah. Well, especially because you, it, it is a contrast point. I mean, you know, you, there is a, they're on, you know, they're on one side. Democrats are on the other side on a very popular issue that really affects people's lives in a personal way and affects people's pocketbooks in a personal way. So I think those kind of the whole goal here is to set up a contrast of the whole election is in a referendum on current conditions that they, you know, pin on the governing party. Right. And uh, so you know when you have those opportunities, you have to make use of them. But if you're not, if you if you if you're simply saying, "Here's what they plan to do," instead of focusing on what you've done and what they've done, right, uh, it's less believable to a skeptical public.
0: Right, and 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 then the the, the subsidiary question there is the one that's again kind of implicit in Bernie's critique. Do you think Democrats got? out over their skis a little bit and putting so many eggs in the abortion basket that that there, yeah. would, there would be, I mean a lot of progressives were saying loudly after uh after Kansas were saying this is it this is the only issue we should campaign on yeah, just abortion rights well, everywhere just, this and this there's been like, a ton of advertising done as you know like in terms of the dollars spent there's been way more money spent on advertising around abortion rights again yeah. I'm not I'm not I, it's not like I don't think abortion rights are important but they've spent Across the country, tons of, of abortion rights ads, and on economics and what Democrats have accomplished, not that much. Do you think that was a misallocation of resources?
1: Well, time and look, effort? I don't think it's a misallocation of resources to be in a com- com- comparative mode. I, I think, I think that you know, again, the the challenge for any incumbent party in a midterm election, and they almost always fail. By the way, is to turn an election that is almost always a referendum on the incumbent into a choice. And so you have to kind of I think put things in a comparative frame all the time. But and I do think the abortion issue is a motivating issue for a lot of voters, particularly younger voters who are sitting on the sidelines. So, I mean, I think it's important, but I don't think it is a silver bullet. I don't think it is the uh it is the you you know, you do have to engage on the things that are most concerning to people in their day-to-day lives and abortion rights is a very concerning issue and you know fox news poll did an interesting thing i don't know if you saw this but instead of asking what are the most important issues you'll be voting on they asked what, what is a deal breaker for you are there issues that are a deal breaker for you and more people said abortion than any other but it was like 20 something percent yeah uh so you want keep the issue front and center, but you can't do it to the exclusion of, you know, some of these basic economic issues. And, uh, you know, you have to engage on those as well. And I do think that, um, you know, I think that there's there, you know, there is this notion that somehow this alone will save Democrats. And, you know, I think it'll be helpful in some places. Interestingly, John, The places where it's most helpful are, you know, I mentioned the seven uh, races in uh, in New York. I mentioned the races in Oregon. There are some uh, really uh, telling races in California. But that's not but the abortion issue is not all that helpful in those places because people are living in states that where they know their abortion rights are going to be secure. Right. Uh, So, um, you know, it's a. It's complicated, and I do think there's a, a, an over-reliance on it. And I think that um, you know, for people who are s- struggling day to day with their costs and who are worried about the economy, uh, to not engage in that discussion and put the jacket on the Republicans for the things you should put the jacket on the Republicans for and not painting the picture of a Republican Party that's so in, into their extremist stuff on abortion and election denial that they're not really focused on these economic issues uh and and a republican party that for all its populist pretensions really sides with corporate interests on these issues uh you know the failure to do those things is a big mistake
0: i wanted to follow up on one other thing you said you raised the marjorie taylor green thing um I spent last week in uh, in the Georgia 14th, uh, in Northwest Georgia, in her district uh, for precisely this reason, you know, that she's, she's having a moment right now as, as someone people are kind of getting to grips with the possibility that, A, or the likelihood that the Republicans will take control of the House, that Kevin McCarthy has... He needs her. He's afraid of her. He needs her for to be speaker. He's afraid of her power with the MAGA base. He's afraid of her her closeness to Donald Trump. He's trying to pull her in. So there was that example you gave of of her behind him at the commitment to America, or whatever he did a he did a fundraiser uh, by her side in Georgia uh, last week, and uh, he also came out and said uh, no blank check in a Republican Congress for Ukraine aid. Going forward, and people rightly, uh, you know, put those two things together and 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 made a certain set of connections related to uh, Kevin McCarthy's foreign policy and that of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, and what that might say about his political his need for her support, his fear of her power, and a lot of things to say about all of that. But uh, you know that you've, you're onto a hot issue. Uh, an issue that has some political juice and an issue that might have some policy consequence when you suddenly see the White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klein, uh, getting on Morning Joe last week and, and out and just very directly making that very connection between McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene and foreign policy and sort of raising the specter of what, uh, uh, what Republican extremism uh, in foreign policy might look like uh, if, in fact, Republicans do take, take control of the House and Kevin McCarthy is a speaker, and yet his gonads are in hock to Marjorie Taylor Greene. What would that mean for the world? Let's let Ron Klein on Morning Joe explain. I will say again, without violating the Hatch Act here, uh, we are planning to
1: work with the Democratic House and a Democratic Senate next year. That's our plan. Uh, I will also say that to date, the fighting Russian aggression in Ukraine has had bipartisan
0: support. The Republican Party uh, historically has stood
1: uh, for uh, combating Russian aggression. Uh, and so I don't see why this uh, should uh, go the direction uh, that Leader McCarthy suggested. I don't think Marjorie Taylor Greene
0: uh, should set the uh, uh, the foreign policy of the Republican Party. I think that'd be a mistake
1: uh, if that's the way this goes.
0: Ron would never want to violate the Hatch Act, but he will say that the Republican Party should not adopt the foreign policy of Marjorie Taylor Greene, just, you know, in passing. Do you think that's like, is that really where we're, do you think that's where we're headed? Like if, if Republicans take control of the house, that, that Republican foreign policy, at least to the extent it matters coming out of the house of representatives, is going to be basically be run by MTG.
1: It's going to be a battle within that caucus. Uh, You know, there are uh, McCall and others there who are, you know, would be heading relevant committees have a different view uh, on this, but I don't, you know, I don't know who's going to win that struggle because as you point out, The most important thing to Kevin McCarthy is Kevin McCarthy and being Speaker of the House. And, you know, he's going to make whatever accommodations he thinks he has to uh, in order to be Speaker of the House. And, uh, you know, I I think some of the more strident voices are going to have outsized influence in that regard because they'll have veto power over his election as Speaker and over any other legislative Initiative. So, um, you know, I mean, that's the the issue with McCarthy is that you know there's this old expression: if you stand for nothing, you'll stand for anything. And uh, you know, he he really his he stands for Kevin McCarthy, and whatever he needs to do for McCarthy, he will do. And if that means turning his back on Ukraine, uh, he'll turn his back on Ukraine. Uh, I don't think Kevin McCarthy actually probably believes we shouldn't be, uh, you know, hanging tough with Ukraine. Uh, I know, you know, you know that his counterpart across the uh, rotunda, McConnell, uh, Mitch McConnell feels otherwise. But, um, you know, he, uh, every day of his life, Kevin McCarthy opens up the window, licks his finger and sticks it out to see <laughs> which way the wind is blowing before he gets dressed and decides what direction he's going to take.
0: That was a mild metaphor. Thank you for keeping that like PG thirteen. Um, yeah. It, on Margie Taylor Green, last comment before we turn to the Senate. I just want to get you to address her kind of head on. You know, um, you know she is. Uh, I, I, it's my contention. I don't think we've ever, you and I have seen a lot of shit in our lives uh, being involved in covering talking about <laughs> politics, but
3: yeah,
0: I've never seen anything like this. I believe that it's it's true that if you asked the average American on the street corner anywhere in America to name their congressperson, they wouldn't know who their congressperson was. And they would be able to name precisely three members of the House, Nancy Pelosi, AOC, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's achieved that, and I'm not saying saying this in a a laudatory way, but she's achieved that. She's not been in Congress one full term yet. Nobody knew who she was less than two years ago. And she's now become, I would say, one of the most sure. identifiable members of Congress. And as someone who worked for Barack Obama, and I'm not comparing them, but someone who is has very much knows what the power of celebrity, ubiquity, fame is in our current political environment, does that not worry you? Because she is oh, yeah. well, on a guys, path.
1: Here's, here's the difference.
0: She, I, I'm, again, I'm not just to be clear. No, I'm not comparing no, no. her. I'm just saying Obama, Trump, no, no, she's, I'm, I mean, it's I'm, ubiquity, man.
1: I'm not, ta- uh, yes, I'm not, uh. I'm not taking umbrage at your suggestion, but, uh, you know, it's not just that she understands the power of celebrity. She understands the power of outrage. And that is what she is really, really gifted at. I mean, you know, the things she says, uh, on a day-to-day basis are batshit crazy and, and, and worse. Uh, but they, uh, they stir people up. They stir up outrage. They mine outrage. And that's why she's one of the top fundraisers in the Republican Party, this woman who literally has done nothing in Congress but run her mouth. I take umbrage sometimes when my Republican friends say, well, we've got uh, Marjorie Taylor Green, but you've got AOC. It's not the same. You know, you can't say that someone you know, an AOC who believes that people should have universal health care or that people should have health care or that, you know, there should be a guaranteed basic income or whatever it is, is the same as someone promoting QAnon, uh, right. you know, and and, and and all this crazy crap that Marjorie Taylor Greene spews that is, uh, you know, beyond, beyond nuts. It's not about policy. I mean, you know, right. If you support a group that believes that, you know, forest fires or starts, you know, happen because of lasers from space lasers run by Jews. Yeah, uh, that's that's not the same as someone who says, I think everyone should have health care.
0: As she would point out to you David she never said Jewish she just said the Rothschilds um, she don't know she not know whether they're Jewish or, she doesn't know whether they're Jewish or not um, look the Jewish space laser thing is a problem I would say but look but but here's the here there are a lot of problems with her obviously including the threats you know things she said about Nancy Pelosi needing to be hung and other things that she said before she became a congresswoman yes. and you know there's a lot of you know, she's well, she, all, she, just our,
1: she just also said Democrats want to kill us
0: well and she says she's compared biden to hitler the other day and 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 you know there's all it's just how it goes she got what's, what i find fascinating about her is that at the beginning of her term within a month she had her committee assignments taken away from her and the and and republicans didn't object to that democrats thought it was necessary they were afraid of her they thought she was an insurrectionist potentially and what happened then was instead of seeing that as a marginalization or as punishment, she thought it was an opportunity. She was like, right. and when and being, if you go down to that district, the people down there that it made her more powerful, caused people to rally to her cause, yeah. thought that it just gave their sense of agreement, it fueled their sense of agreement. Right. And she's and just gotten more and more outrageous. And now the party is coming to her. And I just, you know, think I agree with you. She's not AOC in any substantive way, but. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that she is as she is as as she's the best, maybe better than Trump. She maybe be know the Trump base better than Trump does at this point. Well,
1: listen, there's a reason why she is now traveling. You know, she's like Trump has this sort of bizarro world USO tour that goes uh, (laughs) these rallies and she's always one of the featured performers. Uh, You know, that a lot of the craziest shit she said recently were at, at a rally in Arizona
0: if you uh, if if i asked you this question right now if trump turned against mccarthy in the early part of next year and uh and and decided that he trump decided that marjorie taylor greene should be speaker if if she ran against against mccarthy with trump's backing she with with trump's backing who would you bet on that race being the next speaker of the house
1: well uh neither because well i i don't know actually i i shouldn't say neither I shouldn't say neither. You I bet do on McCarthy, McCarthy though. I would bet on I McCarthy though. <laughs> I, I, no, I, I, what I what I would bet on is that without Trump and the Freedom Caucus, McCarthy can't put it together. Right. Whether mm-hmm. they can put it together for her is a different question. But I think this is something, Kevin McCarthy. You know, there's a Kevin McCarthy who was. Uh, Eloquent in his denunciation of Trump's role on January sixth, and then a week yeah. later went down to Mar a Lago to kiss the ring. Did did it because he did the math. Yep,
0: and you and know, look, I think he,
1: you know, I think so, that's a
0: path. That's a quick path to Jim Jordan being Speaker of the House. Is what I think. That's a path. Yeah, it could be. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of my friend David Axelrod right here on Helen High Water. And we are back with David Axelrod here on Hell Highwater. High Water. Let's turn to the Senate where maybe you'll soothe my nerves a little bit right now. let The United States Senate, you and I would agree, right, I think, of the races that are out there that are going to be pivotal. There is no race more important than Pennsylvania, right? Yes. And, and that that debate, the one debate between Fetterman and Oz uh, takes place Most this week. Most
1: important debate of the year.
0: And the, the, the focus right now in that race is on Fetterman and his health. Here's Dr. Oz with, with, uh, with uh, Hugh Hewitt, I believe, uh, questioning both uh, Fetterman's health and the role of Fetterman's wife.
1: This is not about me or him. It's about the voters. They have a right to know what's going on in his body so they can tell if his wife is right or not. Is she going to be the senator or is he going to be the senator? And these are topics that he has continually ducked. The NBC interview that he did last week, um, was, was awkward for a lot of folks. They had not really seen uh, what it was like for him to recover or where his current That's position right. was because he'd hidden it.
0: Let me ask you, David, how do you think Fetterman has handled, Fetterman and his people have handled, the, the, the legitimate uh, profound health challenge of, of, being, of having a stroke in the middle of a campaign? How do you think they've handled that on every level, politically, uh, optically, you know, his, 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 in terms of his own health, which is what, of course, matters more than anything else? How do you think they've dealt
1: with that? Let me say a few things about it. I I don't think they dealt with. They they did what they had to do, or what they thought they had to do, when the initial event happened right before the primary. No one could say they were exactly straight up about that, uh, because the (laughs) you know the impression was the impression you know they wanted to leave was that this was a minor. Uh, set back and that he would be back shortly and so on and, and now we know that that wasn't the case. Um, you know, I actually saw I, I saw the NBC interview and I thought the single most compelling thing about it and I think Oz, especially you know as a doctor, uh, you better be careful about this, how he handles this in a debate. When Fetterman said, look, I thought I was empathetic and he had problems saying the word empathetic and he acknowledged that he had problems saying the word empathetic. I always thought I was empathetic, but I'm a lot more empathetic now uh, for people who have struggles and who have to overcome, you know, physical challenges and other challenges. I think there were a lot of people in the state of Pennsylvania who heard that and said, you know what, I want a senator who gets that. I want a senator who uh, feel, you know, who understands that struggle. Um, So I actually don't think it's his health that has narrowed that race. It's the 30 million dollars of spending they did in September in September on the issue of crime and focusing on his uh, his tenure as uh, chair of the pardon board in Pennsylvania. I think that. Uh, you know, was sort of a, uh, a way of consolidating uh, Democratic, uh, Republican support behind Oz and beginning to swing some of those independent voters back. Uh, but I do. And so as important, John, as it is for Fetterman to handle the health issue well in this debate, um, I think it's equally important for him to handle the crime issue well in that debate. And, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, at the end of the day, if he loses the race, it is is, I think, less likely to be because of his health as it is because they have successfully portrayed him as outside the mainstream on, you know, on criminal justice issues. And, and that as a sign of, you know, that he's more of the left than uh, than the than the mainstream. I mean, we'll talk some more about crime as a as an issue. But
0: I, I'm curious because you have been, you know, you've done a lot of debate prep for a lot of candidates over the years, yeah. at, from from the lowest levels to the highest levels. Yeah. But you know that what the focus is going to be on in this debate is going to be the health question and how both of them handle it. I think there's no question that if you're a fair-minded person would say that The voters of Pennsylvania have a right to get to have they able they, they should they have a right to have questions about Federman's health, they have a right to ask them, and they have a right to have to have honest, candid, transparent answers. And that's not a partisan point, it's just a, a fact, right? So how, what would you be doing with Fetterman right now? About I think they've done a nice job recently doing the thing you said, which is say, hey, we all have struggles, a lot of us have had healthcare struggles. Right, right. I'm just like you. That's worked. But what do you do on that debate stage when you've got Dr. Oz about to come at you, and you are not necessarily, uh, you have some issues about auditory processing. You do sometimes mush words together. How are you, what are the things you're doing in debate prep if you were running that campaign to get him ready for the challenge he faces?
1: Well, I, I have someone who is uh, a, uh, a faithful and ferocious imitator of Dr. Oz, uh, you know, pounding him uh, in these debate prep sessions. If you do debate prep right, Uh, first of all, you're going to anticipate much of what you get from both the panel and the other candidate. Uh, And the other candidate should be at least as tough, if not tougher than the person you're going to face. And so, you know, I assume that they're spending this weekend, uh, you know, as much as he can, uh, you know, putting him through those paces and arming him with lines uh, of rebuttal and probably rebuke if 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 Oz. I mean, if I'm in the Oz camp, um, I'm advising him: go after him on crime, go after him on other stuff. Be careful how you handle the health issue. Uh, show solicitude. Don't look like an asshole. Don't look like you're you're mean or you're trying to take uh, advantage of uh, of his misfortune. So, um, but if he does. They've got to be you know. They've got to arm Fetterman with responses that really rebu- that that are a kind of moral rebuke of Oz. It, it is a legitimate question, but it's possible to over uh, overplay it. And obviously, the greatest answer to the health question for Fetterman is if, at the end of that debate, people say, "You know what." I think he handled himself pretty well there. I'm convinced that he can do the job. I mean, that's really how
3: yeah.
1: he's going to put the health issue to bed. The other thing, John, that you, know, you asked me how they handle it undoubtedly, from a panel, you're going to have to answer questions as to why you won't release your health records. You know, in a situation like this, right. it's an obvious question, and you better have an answer for it.
0: He put the letter out, you know, from a doctor saying that he has no work restrictions, which is, I think, pretty thin beer compared to what people uh, have a right to ask him for. They, they've not. My biggest the critique is that I just know how this works, man. When you have a health issue and you're running a candidate, if you do not, if you are not maximally transparent and candid from the very beginning, the press just thinks you're lying for the rest of the of, for the rest of the through the duration of the campaign. You, if you get this wrong, and they got it wrong at the beginning, you know, they they just did, and it made everybody distrustful and dubious about them so that any move he makes now is is cast in a cloud of suspicion. It's like I was kind of helped him in that way.
1: One question I would be uh, preparing for if I were him is, you know, a lot of the predicate is I've made a lot of progress and I'm going to make more progress um, but what if he doesn't? What if this is as good as it gets and can he, you know, how does he deal with his constituents if... He can't communicate with them without um, the advantage of closed captioning.
0: I I played Barack Obama before for you, and I'll I'll play him again now on this race, and then I'll ask you about a couple more Senate races. But let's, I wanna hear a lot of things that Obama said in the PodSave interview got some attention. This one got a little less attention, but I thought it was super interesting because he went, you know, he normally doesn't, he says nice things about Democratic candidates. He rarely actually goes after that many Republican candidates by name. But he went directly, he understands how important this Fetterman race is. And so he went straight into the, a, a, a pitch for Fetterman and managed to get a little elbow in on a, on a potentially important Republican along the way, on the way out of this. So let's play mm-hmm. Barack Obama talking about John Fetterman and a prominent Republican uh, who lives a little bit further south in America. The thing I l- love about Fetterman, and you see
2: it in a lot of our other candidates, is you feel as if when you're talking to them, that you're having a normal conversation and they have some sense of how the rest of America lives. <laughs> yeah. Right? Now, why it is that um, those qualities don't seem to always apply to um, successful Republican candidates, I suspect it's, it's the degree to which uh, conservative media uh, just has a lock on how people are presented. And, and sort of the dominant narratives there are, are, are so powerful that, you know, people will vote for DeSantis even if I'm not sure that they would really have a great time. He doesn't. He does not seem
1: like a lot of fun. No,
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> <just> <laughs> right. Hanging out with that guy. <laughs>
0: You know Barack Obama, a guy who has a fingertip feel for what it's like to be a shot in a beer kind of a of a candidate. There, it's always been you know he's, he gets that you know uh, in, in, intuitively, and he's you know he's right about Fetterman, right? I mean that's 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 the case. The Desantis shot on though, was man, like
1: uh, authenticity is Fetterman's. Well, you know, I mean his opponents say it's a phony authenticity, but he's he but but voters seem to get it. I mean he. You know, he yeah. doesn't look like he's not a cookie cutter candidate and he seems like a guy who gets how real people live. And that's a big reason why, despite all the, the, the things that he's had to deal with, he's still very much uh, in a position to win this race.
0: How often do you see Barack Obama take a totally, a, a, just a, just a, a, apropos of nothing, just a shot at, at a Republican like he did on DeSantis there? Like that was not like it, they were talking about DeSantis race. He wasn't asking about it. It was just kind of yeah. like a, just a, just a, a little high, little elbow on the way out the
1: door. <laughs> yeah. Well, he obviously had, he had something on his mind there that he wanted to get, or something on his chest he wanted to get off. Uh, and he, you know what? I'll tell you something. Yeah. He is, he is right about this. Um, I think DeSantis is a very smart guy and you know, there isn't a cultural issue that is, um, uh, that, that he hasn't tried to uh, appropriate for himself that he thinks will energize the Republican base. But, um, you know, uh, I actually had Kellyanne Conway on my Axe Files podcast some months back and, you know, she's yeah. a Trump person, but yeah. she said about DeSantis, um, she said, uh, We'll see if he loves uh, being among people as much as he loves his press conferences. And I think that's yes. a real test for him in uh, in a presidential race. And Obama put his finger on it.
0: So the other two key Senate races uh, that I think we would agree are, you know, everyone's going to be watching. One is in Georgia and the other is in Nevada. So talk about both those races and what you're going to be, what you think is going to be the home stretch dynamic in, in each case.
1: Well, let's talk about Nevada first because um, – you know, you've got Pennsylvania, Nevada, Georgia, and the party that wins two of three will almost certainly control uh, the Senate. Um, and uh, so, if if Democrats retain, if they if they get a Republican seat in Pennsylvania uh, and uh, and hang on to a Democratic seat in uh, in uh, Nevada, the Georgia seat. Um, is not determinative. If though uh, they lose the seat in Nevada, the Georgia seat uh, becomes determinative. And you know, one of the questions is about about Georgia: is does it go to a runoff or not? There are other candidates on the ballot, and they have right. a runoff law there, as we famously learned in two thousand and twenty. What happens if it's uh, if Walker and uh, Warnock go to a go to a, a final that? in December that will determine control of the Senate. To some of those suburban Republicans who just can't countenance Walker, do they grudgingly pull the lever because of control? I don't know. Uh, Obviously, there are a lot of bricks on that load now for uh, Walker, and I think that those kind of suburban independent and Republican-leaning independents are troubled uh, by that. Nevada is a very, very hard state to poll uh it's a very transient state um it is over polled Laxalt, the candidate for the senate has probably more successfully uh fashioned himself as a, a kind of more of a mainstream republican and has put more of it has done a better job of sort of uh saddling her with biden and this is a state that is very um that is very, very sensitive to, uh, the, econ- economic changes. I mean, when you consider, you know, that tourism is the kind of main industry of yeah. the state. So, uh, you know, it's very economy se- uh, sensitive. Um, you know, and I, I just don't know how to call that race. I mean, part of it will be, will she as the, the only, uh, Latina in the Senate, uh, will she galvanize, uh, you know, uh, Latino voters there. Um, there's been some question about how deep that, uh, uh, will be. Um, and I, I just don't know. I don't know. I know that there's a lot of concern about that race and it's very, very close. So, you know, to me, I think there's an assumption that Warnock will pull through now because of everything that's happened with Walker. Um, I thought Walker exceeded very low expectations in that debate. Uh, but you know, the bad stories keep coming. Um, and I, I just don't know how to, I don't know how to call that one. I'm not willing. I think it's probably a shade in Warnock's favor, but I I don't know if it's a, if it's a big Republican year, if at the end things break the Republican way and gravity takes hold and the normal things happen and it's in close races that can make the difference. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, willing to forecast anything here.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, I feel the same way. And we, I've spent some time in Georgia. Um, I, I was, I got to say, I talked about it on the podcast last week, but I'll say it again. I can't, I just couldn't believe Warnock being asked the question, you know, do you, what would you, would you support Joe Biden if you run to run again in 2024? And of all the people to like, to not, to refuse to answer that question and, and to answer it the way he did, which seems so over consultant, the consultants in my head, don't let yourself get, uh, give him ammunition to call you a a Biden rubber stamp. He doesn't answer the question. And then Herschel Walker, I will say the one time he answered a question perfectly in that context was, would you support Donald Trump? Of course I would support him. He's my friend. I would, I'm a a loyal friend. I mean, that was like a home run answer for Herschel Walker. in that Right.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, and I think that's the, a little bit of the danger that that what I saw in that debate, I, I, I have a lot of respect for Warnock and I think he's uh, polished person, but, um, yes, uh, and a serious, but, per- uh, and a serious be, person and a qualified over- United
0: States be, Senator. Yeah.
1: You can be over polished. And, um, I think that was, you saw a bit of that in that debate. That was an obvious question and there was an obvious answer and he didn't, and he didn't give it
0: yet. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I like I said, I you know I think one of the questions down there is what black turnout is going to look like, and and if and you know the Warnock people think about yes. whether he's going to have to face a turnout or a runoff or not is to some extent contingent they think on turnout among black voters. Yes, and it and and I'm curious about whether you. My sense is that there's not a lot of enthusiasm in the African American base of the Republican Party or the in the African American base of the Democratic Party right now that there's like very low. Uh, engagement, very low enthusiasm, very low, uh, propensity to turn out. Maybe I'm wrong about that in Georgia. No one thinks it's there. And I wonder what you think about it across the country is that this has been yeah. a problem for Biden throughout the first two years in the democratic party, black voters who are like, we gave you the white house and you haven't given us much back.
1: Well, I mean, I think this is a concern, uh, in a number of races. It's obviously, you know, you're talking about, uh, a little less than a third of the electorate in, uh, Georgia. Georgia. So it's it's obviously important. There, The other element there is what percentage of that vote does does Walker get? And is it higher than normal, which would, you know, necessitate, obviously, we're not getting a higher than normal share of the the white vote. Uh, But, um, you know, you look at Pennsylvania, I think one of the uh, things that, you know, people could be watching is how's the black turnout in Philadelphia? And, you know, yeah. Republicans have been working uh, subterranean uh, to try and uh, dampen enthusiasm for Fetterman among black voters in Philadelphia using an incident back from 2013, where he chased a guy who yeah. he thought might have been uh, involved in something in, in his hometown with a shotgun, you know, and you know, this came, this surfaced after the Arbory thing and so on. You know, he's, Address It probably will come up again in this debate or it might come up again in this debate. But all over the country, black voter enthusiasm is a is an issue. And I think one of the reasons there's such an eagerness to have President Obama out there is in part to try and address that. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll see if he can help.
0: So so let me ask you to, to, to just to conclude here on the Senate. We could spend a lot of time talking about I assume you, you, you know, you look at that Wisconsin Senate race and and you're not you, – you would say that's a lean Republican at this point, right? The crime issue has been used to bludgeon uh, Mandela Bards.
1: Sadly, I would say that. You know, Ohio, I think Tim Ryan is, I, was run probably the best campaign of any Democrat in the country. And there's a lot to study yeah. for, uh, uh, for Democrats moving forward because he is uh, reaching out to working class voters in a way that Democrats haven't been very – good at, uh, in, in recent cycles. Uh, but it's just such a hard, it's a plus eight Republican state. It's, and, 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 you know, the atmospherics of the year are such, it's, it's really tough for him. Arizona, you know, I think, uh, that, uh, Mark Kelly is certainly the favorite to win that race. You do watch that closely because the governor's race, uh, could, could have an impact on the Senate race yep. there. Um, and uh, but but by and large, you know, North Carolina, I think there's some hope for that. But, I, you know, I, I and Republicans have hopes for Colorado. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, these are the three states, the ones we started with right. that are going to tell the tale.
0: So I want to I want to ask you about we'll, we'll do these very quickly because there are three potential wild cards. One of them is the uh, the race I want to play a little sound from from a debate that took place last week in the Utah Senate race between yes uh, Evan McMuffin I mean McMullen and uh, <laughs> and uh, and Senator Mike Lee where uh, McMuffin uh, uh, laid the cheese. Or the Canadian bacon, or whatever it is on. Uh, ah, you on, were setting
1: on, something up there.
0: On Mike Lee, here, here you it comes. Here a, it comes. You let's, have me, let's, pant,
1: let's, you, you have me uh, pegged as a McDonald's guy, I'm sure. But anyway, go
0: ahead. Well, I don't. You know, you're a Billy Goat Tavern guy at heart. I know, David. Yeah, uh, right. And a, and, and a Manny's guy, not a McDonald's guy. But let's play. 100. Uh, percent,
1: Yeah. Let's
0: play. Let's play McMuffin here,
1: Senator Lee. You advised spurious, so-called legal efforts to mislead tens of millions of Americans that the election had been stolen. And congratulations, you succeeded. As recently as this year, and even tonight, you're still casting doubt on the legitimacy of the election. No, you're doing a true. you're doing a tremendous disservice to this country, Senator Lee. You have betrayed your oath to the Constitution with this. Evan, that's not true. It is. You know that's not true. You, sir, owe me an apology.
0: I don't imagine that there's going to be an apology forthcoming anytime soon no. from McMuff- from McMuffin to Lee. Um, but that race is like come out of nowhere. It's like it suddenly people say, you know, McMuffin could win that race, and and boy, no one is taking on the election denial issue more forcefully. That's, he's like making it front and center. That's the whole the whole gist of the of the McMullen yeah. campaign. And I, I want to ask you about what you think of that race, but also about two others because we'll put them all in the wild card basket. Yeah, yeah. Is, is Chuck Grassley? So that's grass a really,
1: that's a obviously a really interesting uh, race, and it hasn't. It's been on some people's radar screen. Uh, For a while, my uh, podcast partner, Mike Murphy, uh, has been high on that race for uh, for quite a while. And, uh, you know, the the Democratic Party is standing down in that race. So he's got a clear uh, he's got a clear shot. Uh, And, you know, uh, that has uh, Utah's a little bit of a different state. It's not. Yeah, Yeah. it's not. It's not, you know, a hardcore sort of Trumpy. State, you know, the other senator, uh, Mitt Romney, has not made an endorsement in the race, much to the consternation of Senator Lee. Uh, but um, you know, the question is, at the end of the day, um, if if people there believe that this is about control of the Senate, uh, does that give uh, Lee the extra oomph that he needs? Uh, to beat a very determined challenge by not McMuffin, but McMullen.
0: Right. That's a fascinating race. Two others, is Chuck Grassley in in real trouble in Iowa and is Patty Murray in real trouble in Washington? Because those are two races that that people are talking about now that no one's talked about all year long. Two very safe incumbents, a Democrat in Washington, a Republican in Iowa, who suddenly there's chatter in the political class that either one of them might be a shocker and lose
1: uh, on election night. Yeah, we become so tribal in our politics in this country that I, I just don't believe that either uh, challenger is going to overcome the uh, the partisan predilections uh, of the states. You know, Washington was a strong Biden state, uh, Iowa a strong Trump state. You know, and there, you know, in in Iowa, the the obvious problem that. Uh, grassley has is he's 89 years old he's asking to be to serve until he's 95 and uh i think that that is you know troubling (laughs) to to a lot of voters there but at the end of the day i think you know it's more likely than not that uh that they will vote they will vote party you know i mean his his approval rating has taken a huge hit too and i think you know but i think a lot of this is related to his age and and, uh, and and ultimately, party will prevail and he, he'll win, but not nearly by the margins that he's won before. All right. We're going to take one more. Very quick, very short, very
0: momentary, very just like just like a heartbeat, like a like a flap of the butterfly wings, just like a blink of the eye. Uh, that size break small, that is to say. And uh, we'll be back on the other side of it with David Axelrod here on Hell and High Water. Okay, okay. I promise we come back, and here we are. We're back with the one and only David Axelrod, with us, not for the first time, not for the second time, but for the third time in the life of this podcast on Hell and High Water. The the, the last our last line of engagement here on these questions of the governors, and 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 it does, yeah. you know. Okay, so let's assume Patty Murray holds on to her seat in Washington State, which I think is a pretty pretty safe assumption. Although you never know, it's a weird times we live in. Yes, you go a little bit south of washington state and you know where you find out yourself in david if you know your geography right that's oregon i believe
1: yes i do know yeah also a very liberal state yeah but this is a tough year for democrats there you've got three uh congressional seats um you know two cluster around portland that are are really really competitive you know there uh the issue of crime really has teeth because there was all this tumult after the uh after the George Floyd murder, that uh, long term issues in Portland that really dominated uh, the news there. And in the governor's race, you have a three way race with an independent yes. candidate who's quite wealthy, who's a former Democrat uh, and the speaker of the House, who's a Democrat uh, running. And it's a neck and neck race with a Republican, all women, by the way. Yes. Um, so, you know, that's this is a tough year for Oregon uh Democrats. Uh, I just
0: wanna I want to play that one little bit of sound here. Let's play this is from the Oregon
1: uh governor's debate.
0: These are people basically no one has ever heard of outside of the state of Oregon, who suddenly everyone's paying attention. The New York Times wrote about it, as David said, three-way race, three women, a kind of libertarian third party candidate who's who's for real and is going to take up a decent chunk of the vote. And now it looks like this woman, Christine Drazen, who's the Republican candidate, uh, is taking on the comment speaker of the House who's now running for governor. So let's play this. I want to hear, because hear, hear, this also gets at this crime issue. And that David, I want to talk, well, Oregon is what it is, but there's also, man, this crime thing is everywhere. And I want to get right. your take on it. So let's hear, let's hear Christine Drazen. This is very specific to Tina Kotek, but I got to say, it's not like we don't hear this in almost every race, everywhere we go, all over the country, these same kind of attacks.
3: You know, Tina Kotek is the original defund the police candidate. She did not support police even when rioters were attacking a police station. It's stunning to me that she would talk now like she supports law enforcement. I will support law enforcement. As governor, I will fully fund state police. As governor, I will support law enforcement because we need it in our communities. Our communities are less safe today because we have fewer police on our streets. Our, our police officers ensure community safety. They ensure that that we actually have in laws that are enforced. We deserve that. We need that. And as governor, I will ensure that that is our future.
0: So I mentioned the Mandela-Barnes race. Uh, you mentioned before the Fetterman race. Like in a lot of close races, in a lot of, you know, purplish places, and apparently in Oregon, which is not a purple place at all, this crime issue has become like the closing issue. The inflation thing is against – is the backdrop against which the, the national mood – the national environment has shifted. But there, if you look at what's on the air in a lot of states, it's yeah. crime, crime, crime. D- Democrats getting hit for being the defund the police party, def- the
1: defund the police candidates, even those who have never said the words defund the police, and even those who have voted to fund the police. It's most Democrats haven't said th- those words. I mean, you know, this was something that Trump did. I think very skillfully. He brand he took, uh, you know, the uh, the the position largely of a you know some group in Minnesota, and he branded the whole national Democratic Party with it. You know, Biden couldn't have been clearer on this, and has been consistently. But um, you know, it plays to a meme that uh, Republic You know, this goes back decades and decades yeah. uh, Republicans have had success with and it comes at a time uh, you know 2020 was a very tough year I mean by the way Trump was president at the time but uh, there was a big spike in crime nationally uh, related to um, related to the pandemic uh, it's come down but it's still elevated in places and there have been you know random acts in cities, that have gotten a lot of attention. And in some cities, um, you know, even in my own city of Chicago, that, you know, this issue has been being used by Republicans. I don't think they're going to win with it. Uh, But, and suburban candidates are particular, suburban voters are particularly sensitive uh, to these issues. Uh, And I think, you know, in some ways, this crime issue has been used as an antidote to the abortion issue. You know, some of the same voters who uh, are really unhappy with Republicans over uh, some of the extreme positions, no exceptions, positions on abortion are also people who live in communities where uh, there's a sensitivity to the crime issue uh, in in the cities. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is there's this has been a national play. Uh, and it's going to be more effective in some places than other. There are some races where it's really going to be determinative. I will say in Wisconsin, you know, this is also it's always been sort of a backdoor way to get it, to the issue of race, race, yeah. without ever saying it. Um, and Mandela Barnes is an African-American candidate. Um, but he also has been someone who's been a very active in the criminal justice reform movement. And, uh, you know, there are threads that they can pull on to try and um uh, make the case they're making about him. You know, yeah, this is a problem for, it's a problem for Democrats. Do, do you think that you've heard,
0: uh, you know, I've seen a lot of answers to it. You know, one of them goes to, you know, we voted for, we not only did we not uh, defund the police, we voted to fund the police and you Republicans didn't. And, and, and sometimes that's effective. And in other cases, they're just being lied about and, and you could make clever creative ads that, that point out the way you're being lied, uh, lied about if you're a Democrat do you think that the democrat what if if, uh, if you were like god on some level right and you could be like you know democrats have a problem right, well, wait there. let
1: me get myself in that mindset okay go yeah, ahead yeah
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, if you i mean if you could, better be a
1: good question or i'm going to smite you uh right.
0: not for the first not for the first time it, it, like the people, people don't understand the Democratic Party is not like an actually an organized, normal institution. It's not like somebody runs the Democratic Party and that here's the Democratic Party. There's someone who runs the message for the Democratic Party. That that's, what I meant, that's what I meant by if you were God, kind of like if you could be in charge and you're like, hey, David, you know what? We need a solution on the crime yeah. issue.
3: We've yeah. been
0: branded by Donald Trump this way. It's stuck to us unfairly. Uh, we hear you know misleading claims about about crime statistics. We hear that we're all defund the police. What do we do as a party to 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 make this go away? To make to, to not only to make it go away as a as a vulnerability, but potentially to to capitalize on the notion that a party that supports insurrectionists. It's, yeah, laughable. No, I mean, that's, it's laughable that they should be like the, the pro I mean, it's, police. It's party.
1: incredible. It's incredible, really, that they've gotten away with that. I mean, uh, someone like Ron Johnson, who, you know, um, whose depiction of what happened at the Capitol has no relationship to reality. Uh, the fact that he should be benefiting from a kind of pro police uh, platform when you see what happened to the police uh, there. Uh, but I think that has to be accompanied with an acknowledgement that, you know, uh, guaranteeing as best as we can, people's safety in, in on the streets and their homes and the communities is an important part. It's a, it's an obligation that we should, that we take really, that we should take really seriously. And yes, that may include more police. You have to have adequate police. You also have to add adequate policing strategies and, Democrats should be, you know, embracing that. There's also the issue of guns and that can that should be part of the discussion as well. Um, So, um, you know, I I do think that it it is I I think simply changing the subject is probably not adequate. I think you have to engage to some degree and put some of the stuff back on them.
0: Is there a is there a on the topic of governors? Is there a, gu- a gubernatorial candidate in the in the in the country who you've been because you mentioned this earlier? We talked about Arizona at the very top of the podcast. Is there a candidate who you've been more at the level of pure performance, who you've been more impressed by this cycle than Carrie Lake, and that therefore you are more terrified by because of the fact that she is an election denier and 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 you know basically I think of her as Sarah Palin with somewhere between 30 and 50 extra IQ points. That's a kind of dangerous blend, uh, when it comes to it, you know, someone who's well, up- she
1: also has, listen, the thing that she has going for her is, um, she has the agility of someone who's spent her whole life in front of a camera. Yeah. And, and the other thing that's helping her there is, um, you know, she delivered the local news for 27 years. So she had a relationship with people there who felt like she was giving them facts, even though she is running a campaign that, is sort of sundering facts right and left or right and right. I don't know that there's others that, you know, stand out that way. You know, um, I, I think uh, Gretchen Whitmer will will win in Michigan, but that's going to be a closer race than people think. I know that uh, Tudor Dixon just threw up an ad that I thought was pretty effective uh, that sort of tries to normalize her. She's also an election Denier and has an extreme position on, uh, on abortion. But, um, if you look at the ad, it's a, it's an indictment of, 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 conditions in Michigan and a presentation of herself as sort of a normal person, mother, community leader, and so on. But Whitmer is a good candidate and she's, and, and, and Dixon is not in the, um, she's certainly not in the league of Carrie Lake as a presenter.
0: And, and sort of, yeah. So that's, I think that's right. Um, and, and, you know, there's a flip side to this, right? So Carrie Lake, we'll see what happens in Arizona, but, um, you know, I was, we were down there with the circus and watching her and Christy Nome at an event, they're scary in terms of what they believe, but they're very good, um, as can, in terms of candidate skills. And I, uh, you know, I dashed off a, a note to, uh, to a political professional of your acquaintance, uh, a uh, uh, close acquaintance I should say someone who has very good judgment about these things who wrote back to me there's your 2024 republican ticket those two women could be could be the could be the Republican presidential ticket and and they would be that would be a potentially strong ticket Carrie lake of course graduated of the University of Iowa not not incidentally she might have some connection to uh to right. that electorate on the other side the two most famous democratic candidates the the stars of the party in 2018 the last midterms uh, Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke, um, does either one of them have a, a remote chance of winning in those states or are they are they dead meat at this point? Stick
1: you know, I, dead dead meat is a is a strong uh, but but I don't know. I don't know anybody in either party who would bet on either of those candidates. <laughs> right. right. So,
0: I mean, dead know. meat is a strong is a strong term, but you're basically saying that's correct. You can stick a fork in those two campaigns. They're done.
1: I'm saying I don't know anybody in either party who would probably bet on them.
0: <laughs> on message, David Axelrod, he's been a message <laughs> discipline that's impressive. Yeah, Do you think if they lose those races, and this actually goes to a thing that you and I have discussed on, on more than one occasion in, in other contexts. You know, Barack Obama, people underestimate the degree to which timing was so key for him. And it was so everybody in the world had a reason why. Him running for president in the 2008 cycle was too soon. You know, two years in the United States Senate, um, didn't really have the resume that a lot of people expected from presidential candidate. And you guys were like, no, this is your moment. You got to take this moment right now. And he had the balls to take it and then became the first black president of the United States. Other people missed their moments. And I wonder about, about both Stacey Abrams and Better O'Rourke, whether – what, the, what has happened over these years since they ran in 2018 and were superstars, national figures, as, as and fell short in their races, and then Beto goes off and runs for president, takes a bunch of liberal positions uh, that make him kind of unelectable in Texas, I would say. Do you, you think those are two people who essentially they missed their moment where they were very promising potential uh, candidates of the future for the Democratic Party who now will be pretty badly scuffed up if they both lose their races and maybe don't have much of a future in national politics?
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously a second loss, uh, a second loss in their states for each of them would be tough. Uh, I think that Stacey Abrams missed an opportunity in 2020. You know, you look at Pete Buttigieg, who was a small town mayor. And because of the way he performed in that campaign uh, on the debate stage and on the trail, uh, became uh, a national figure. Uh, I mean, the campaign became a proving ground for him. So he no longer was just a small town mayor, but someone who held his own at the top of the game. Uh, she could have done that and, uh, would have been a much stronger, position. might've been, you know, considered for the vice presidency, who knows? Um, and you know, to, uh, both of them have chosen governor. I mean, I, I think they did it because they believed that there needed to be a strong candidate in each state. But uh, they chose to run in a midterm, first term, midterm, with a Democratic president in states that are tough.
3: Yeah. And,
1: they're, and they're finding that to be they're finding that to be the case. I think that what's important in Texas, though, is, you know, there was this sense that there was this inexorable sort of movement of Texas into the Democratic column that it would turn purple and so on. And I think that those assumptions need to be uh, questioned because of the performance of Latino voters in South Texas uh, and, you know, this goes to a larger discussion that Democrats have to have after this election. And we'll see how Hispanic voters vote around the country. First of all, a recognition that the Hispanic community is a bunch of communities and not one. And they don't all behave the same way. And secondly, that a lot of Hispanic voters are working class voters who respond to a lot of the same issues that white working class voters do. And 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 increasingly, it's becoming an evangelical uh Uh, vote. And all of those things are, you know, need to be considered by Democrats and certainly by Texas Democrats.
0: So, you know, we've talked about Obama uh, a couple times in this podcast, David, I got I got to get one more in here, uh, because uh, maybe of all the things that he said on Pod Save America last week, the one that got the most attention was a place where he started talking about um, some things that I know he has some frustration with uh, in terms of democratic rhetoric and particularly the rhetoric of the left, which he sees as sometimes, uh, although he is a very, very progressive guy, he sees some of the, the language policing and some of the identity politics of the left as counterproductive to the party's best interests. And he went on a little bit of a riff uh, about that, on Pod Save America, in which he talked about what he thinks a more satisfactory, more inclusive, and more politically productive Democratic stance related to uh, a lot of these issues uh, of identity politics that the left uh, has seized on in recent years. And he used a very memorable phrase, he invoked a word that, you know, is now. Uh, If you were still president, we would be calling it this buzzkill gate. (laughs) Uh, But let's take a listen to Barack Obama. Well, let's just call it that. Let's take a listen to Barack Obama on Pod Save America talking about wokeism, the Democratic Party, and why it's not a great idea to be a bunch of buzzkills. Look, I used to get into trouble whenever,
2: as as, you you guys know well, whenever I got a little too professorial Mm -hmm. and there were times where I'd get, you know, you know, sound like I was given a bunch of policy gobbledygook. And that's not how people think about these issues. They, they think about them in terms of, you know, the life I'm leading day to day. How, how, how does politics even, how is it even relevant to, uh, you know, the things that I, I care most deeply about? My family, my kids, you know, work that gives me satisfaction, uh, you know, Having fun, you know. Not, you know, not not being a buzzkill, right? <laughs> and sometimes Democrats are, right? Yeah. It's it's like, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, people just want to not feel as if uh, they are walking on eggshells.
0: This kind of points to this big cultural question, and I know it's a big concern of his. The notion that like politics is no longer really about policy; it's really about culture, and Democrats are on the wrong side of that. Do you, when you heard him say that, you just—I heard you che- basically cheering as I'm recounting it to you. A
1: hundred percent, hundred percent. Talk to
0: me about why that matters so much for the future of the Democratic Party and and how it like in the shape of our politics that culture is kind of where the center, uh, the center of the debate is now, and you got to get right with it or you're going to be in real trouble.
1: Well, first of all, I think people. Sh- need to reflect on the Democrats who have won, you know, and why they won. Uh, Barack Obama, yes, he was the first black president, uh, but he didn't run on the platform of becoming the first black president. He ran as a guy who who was black and proud of being black, but was running to become president of of the whole United States and spent a whole lot of time in a lot of places that other candidates maybe haven't gone lately. Uh, you know, and remember, he was the last Democrat to win, uh, the last and only Democrat since Lyndon Johnson to win uh, the state of Indiana. He uh, lost Montana by two points. He, uh, you know, um, uh, he won North Carolina, he won Iowa, he came close in Missouri, you know. Um, And the question is, how did a guy named Barack Obama, black guy named Barack Obama do that? Well, he did it by focusing on issues that were issues of universal concern to working people and not by focusing on, uh, culture and not by looking down at people. Um, I mean, he, when he went into those working class communities in Iowa and other States, um, you know, he went there with respect and, uh, was solicitous of the people he, uh, found there and, and took away their stories with him. And, um, I, I think, you know, there's a danger that the democratic party is, is becoming more and more a college educated metropolitan party that sort of conveys a sense of disdain, uh, for people who work with their backs or work with their hands. Uh, you know, we call them essential workers, uh, when we have a, when we have a pandemic, but when it comes down to it, um, you know, uh, you know, we don't, all, we don't always treat them respectfully or what they do with respect. And I think it's important to know that.
0: But I think Obama's saying something even more than that, right? It's like, he's critiquing a thing. You know, you think about some of the things that he said. Yeah, as he is president. No,
1: he is. No, he is. I work on a college campus. I, you right. know, I, I mean, and there is this, you know, you, you know, there is this excessive, uh, not, not, not just on a campus, but generally within some elements of the Democratic Party, uh, just this incredible focus on, uh, on these cultural issues and, and, and sensitivity. And to language read. and
0: pronouns and, and how, you, yeah. how you're supposed yeah. to p- speak correctly.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly. And, and lack of tolerance uh and uh so i I do think that's a vulnerability for Democrats in building a larger uh majority and uh, you know uh Democrats need candidates who are uh agile enough to understand that and sensitive enough to understand that and uh stay out of those traps and not get dragged into them.
0: It's a longer conversation, but I will say that that, that I think part of the reason why that clip resonated with a lot of people was. Him saying the words "Democrats can be buzzkills" and that like it it, the that and that the walking on eggshell thing it's really resonant for a lot of people. Even if you get out of the question of wokeism, it's kind of like it's just everyone the notion that that there was a thing in that Lincoln Project documentary that the that Showtime just had on that has a a, a, someone talking. I don't even know who the person was in real time at the after right in the day after the twenty twenty election, saying about Trump that part of the power of Trump was that. He's like, he gave you permission as a human to like never feel judged by him. He, he was in no position to judge you. This is not a pro-Trump voice. This is like, he's so aim- immoral that it gave you the space. You could, He would never judge you. He was, right. you can eat however much you want. You can say whatever you want.
1: You know, the only thing he'll judge you on is whether you like him.
0: Right. It's, so it's all, but the, his and this person's point was the, the appealing thing about Trump is that the Republican Party is basically giving you license to do whatever you want and that Democrats and the left are constantly scolding you and telling you not no, to do this, yes, that, and the other that, thing. That, that, and there's that, a power that. to that that I think is that a lot of people resonates with a lot of people, that you're kind of like, just could you please stop telling me that I'm fucking up all the time,
1: you know? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I always bring up the example of climate change. Uh, change, You know, I mean, I think it's an existential crisis. I think anybody uh, who looks at the evidence would say that. But if you're someone who has spent your life extracting energy from the ground, and that's how you've made a good middle-class living and probably uh, uh, generations before you have, and all of a sudden you're being told it's your moral obligation to give up that livelihood, that's an existential crisis, too. So if you're going to have a reasonable conversation At least bring that understanding to the conversation and, uh, you know, try and figure out how we deal with that kind of a transition in a way that's fair and equitable.
0: The stakes of the 2022 midterms are very high. We know the stakes of the 2024 2024 presidential election are going to be even higher. There is one issue on which the city you're in, the city of your birth, New York City, where they seem to have a handle on a very important political issue that I think every Democrat – Should get its head around going forward. And that they focused on it partly because they knew you were coming to town. So I asked, I asked, I said, I told Eric Adams, Axelrod's coming to town, and you guys got to get a grip on this one problem we have. And it will also provide a template for Democrats going into the future. And this issue is the issue that you're going to hear about right now. Eric Adams and a bunch of New York politicians talking about a key issue in the city and one of great concern to David Axelrod in the country at large.
1: Fighting crime, fighting inequality, fighting rats. Some of the same folks that are criticizing us now called me a murderer because I was killing rats. I hate rats.
3: Shut down the all-night, all-you-can-eat rat buffet. The rats are absolutely going to hate this announcement. <laughs> the rats don't run this city, we do. The rats hate that too.
1: This is not a ratatouille. Rats are not our friends. We are taking the fight to the rats. Well, you know what? We're going to kill rats. You know, John, when I was a young reporter at the Chicago Tribune, I covered the mayor's race. And, the, you know, the Republican primary was always a joke because no Republican was going to get elected. But there was a guy named George Manning, who was an exterminator, who ran for mayor. And his whole platform was the city's honeycomb with rats. We've got to do something about it. And actually, Mayor Daley, the second Mayor Daley, was very focused on <laughs> this issue. So I'm familiar with this, with this, uh, you know, and the power, and of, I, I, the power uh, of this I, issue, I, yeah. and I applaud Mayor Adams for wanting to be the verminator. Yeah,
0: oh my god, that, that, I I can't even say another word after that. The verminator, <laughs> I mean, holy shit, this is why they pay David Axelrod the good, the big bucks. <laughs> the verminator, somebody get Axelrod's going to be running Eric Adams's presidential campaign <laughs> as the verminator. Uh, that's the next, I, I see the future. Uh, I see the future, David Axelrod. Thank you for being on. And uh, all right, brother. Uh, pl- just don't don't be too mean to all those geriatrics you're going to see at your high school reunion. They they're all going to be in awe of you. How ambulatory, how fast you move, how nimble you are, how still all the presence of mind, the whole thing. So just be nice. to Them be generous. Remember to be. I'm going good- to I'm
1: I'm going to do jumping jacks uh, as soon as I get off here to get ready. So, uh, good to good good to be with you, brother.
0: Hello, high water is a podcast from the recount. Thanks again to David Axelrod, he of CNN, the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, Hacks on Tap, The Axe Files, and of course, you know, the guy who helped Barack Obama become the first black president of the United States. All of that. Thank you for being with us, David. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell in High Water, share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is co-creator of Hell in High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Amr Sultan produced and engineered this episode. Zoya Saroy did all of the research. And of course, the man without whom none of this would be possible, our executive producer, the one and only the truth, the light, the heat. Martializing.